Hey, I'm Amit Farhang, CCO at Momentum. This episode, we're going to switch it up a little bit with a very special freelance edition of the podcast, because today my guest is Justin Genak, co-founder of Working Not Working, the preeminent network site where freelance creatives and companies go to connect. Essentially, creatives broadcast their real-time availability directly to companies looking to hire them with no commissions and no middlemen. It has become an essential and transformative tool for the thousands in the freelance community and has even expanded to include full-time talent as well. Hundreds of companies now use Working Not Working as an extension of their creative department, including Apple, Google, Droga5, Wyden Kennedy, Airbnb, Kickstarter, IDEO, The New York Times, and Momentum. Prior to starting Working Not Working, Justin was an award-winning art director and creative director at ad agencies around the country. Perhaps he's best known for helping create the legendary Elf Yourself, unleashing the world's elf fetish with over 1.5 billion elves created to date. He also gained notoriety for his various art projects, including NYC Garbage, Wants for Sale, and Needs for Sale. He's been named to the Creativity 50 and featured in major publications, including NBC, CBS, Time, and Fast Company. He's one of the great young entrepreneurs and innovators of the marketing industry and the new economy. This is Justin Genak and I talking to ourselves. Where are you from, and what did your parents do? Yeah, so I um, I grew up in southeastern Connecticut, Norwich, Connecticut. Um, my dad was a clown, and my mom was class clown. Um, so my dad was an actual clown when I was a child. So I was kind of destined to be a weirdo. Um, so he was a clown and a magician. He was Bixbo the Clown. Uh, and a magician, he also worked in engineering at a radio station, so he kept them on air and built their studios and all that. And so he, he, put the, he retired the clown, uh, Bixbo, uh, when I was maybe like 10 years old, he said he's in a coma. So if he ever needs to bring him back, he can. Right. But um, but then he kept, continued to do magic and motivational speaking and all of that. And so I got to see him kind of live a bit of an independent life and, and do all sorts of weird jobs and know that that's going to be okay. And also seeing him on stage all the time and just like feeding off of the energy of applause and needing that validation is probably an affliction I, I uh, inherited from him. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I got, got to see that. And my mom was artistic. She was in the art program at my high school when, you know, she was there. Uh, super funny, uh, totally a weirdo and very spontaneous and kind of both of them were focused on, I remember my dad telling me that the, it was important to him to make memories. So he would just do the randomest shit. Like I, I have a memory when I was like five years old and we were at, uh, in, on vacation with our whole family in Disney and I was taking a bath and my dad pretended that I pulled him in and he was like fully clothed and just covered in the water and there's a photo of that but that's like a memory that sticks with me or my mom would go chase my aunt through the house with a hose and you know and so there was all this like funny moments that just really stuck with me yeah. um, and, it, and it also taught me like to be a bit shameless you know and uh, and just to, just to have fun and that's definitely a through line throughout my my career and my life. Yeah, what you call clown. I <laughs> listen back and hear uh, non-traditional marketer and entrepreneur <laughs> yep. and an expert experiential marketer. Yes, exactly. Um, well, <laughs> so if we're a response to our parents, mm -hmm. then if your dad is a clown, then you rebelled by wanting to be a stockbroker when you were 12 years old. What yeah. did you want to be when you were 12 years old? When I was 12, I, I had I wanted to be a cook. You know, I don't even cook now. I'm not that. I think he had a, a friend who was a, a, a instructor, a, a chef. So I was very impressed by that, even though I wasn't really that into cooking. Um, when I was a kid and I went to Catholic school, I wanted to be a priest, which was, you know, I think that's everyone's dream when, or that's their dream for you to like brainwash you into that. Um, 
But I had when I actually, to be honest, when I was 11 years old, uh, I decided I wanted to be in advertising. Uh, I had my stepdad who worked construction, worked uh, pouring concrete, very hard, you know, uh, blue collar jobs. And we were sitting in the parking lot of a local grocery store waiting for my mom to come out. And I was like, you know, talking about what I want to do. And he's like, well, you're artistic and uh, you record those commercials all the time. Maybe you should get into advertising. So I and I was I used to record the Clio Awards on VHS and watch them back and watch the commercials. And it was like from that point on, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to be in advertising. So at 11 years old, I wanted to be in advertising. And I had that just my mindset on that. Even in high school, I went to a really great um, art high school, public school, but had a great art program in Norwich. And I knew I wanted to be in advertising. So I only looked at schools that had advertising and I went to school of visual arts and that was it. What channel did they air the Clio Awards? I, I don't know. I, I was talking to someone who works at the one show now who used to work for the Clios. And I feel like it was it was like a- ABC or CBS or something. Wow. We got to bring that back. Yeah. So that was kind of, it was cool. And uh, and I was just really into it. And, and then I had kind of a, a moment in high school where I went to a class trip at the Museum of Modern Art and it was a Jasper Johns exhibit and it changed my life even, and it kind of reinforced that idea. Um, there was one painting of his called Fal- False Start, which is the word blue painted in orange and green painted in white and red painted in yellow. And for me, as a 16-year-old kid, I, I came across very smart-ass because it totally fucked with my head. Yeah. And because you couldn't read the word and the color and all that, and it was just like a mind fuck. And I was like, "Oh my god, wait!" So this guy is a smart-ass, and he's being celebrated in like the, the best museum in the world. That means I could probably do that too. And so it totally changed my line of thinking, how I approach problems. When I would get an assignment, I would try to find all the ways to break the rules but stay within the rules. Yeah. Um, and it totally just teed me up to being like the proper mindset for advertising. It, some synapse happened when I saw that painting. And I saw it again a few months ago in L.A. And I got really emotional seeing it because yeah. it was like, holy shit, like that moment uh, just totally rewired my thinking and, and totally changed my trajectory. People, people hear rules yeah. and they think – in a creative industry that rules are a bad thing. Like rules are actually a wonderful thing. Yeah. Without rules, it's not a game. If you don't have to dribble and there's no lines, it's not basketball. Yeah. So it's, I think, yeah, I agree with you. The most fun part about it is sort of figuring out what the rules are and how to sort of subvert them while following them. But it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a sonnet. You can make a different kind of poem. If it's not, if it's 14 lines, if it's mm-hmm. not 14 lines, it's not a sonnet. So, but there's different definitions of what a line can be. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think the the best work seems, or the work that resonates with me the most, seems to have that quality of like it knows the rules and it sort of breaks them while following them simultaneously. I was always trying to be a little bit mischie- mischievous and and find ways to get around things because that was exciting to me, Bre- breaking the rules and 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 surprising people and and stirring up some trouble. Yeah, and it's kind of what it's all about. You you worked at a couple different agencies, but what was the agency where you really started to feel yourself kind of blossom as a professional? Uh, I, I started Ogilvy was my first job, but then I went after a year and a half to Fallon, New York, yeah. and it was the last year and a half Fallon, New York was open. And at the time, we were, I think, the third most awarded agency in the country, uh, and we only had a creative department of eight people. It sounded like you enjoyed agency life, but. Did you always feel a sort of entrepreneurial itch that wasn't being scratched at agencies that you just maybe you didn't know how it would take shape? But did it, did something always feel a little bit missing for you? Uh, I, at the time, I was I was really into it, um, but I always had side projects. Um, so when I was a sophomore at School of Visual Arts, 
Uh, I started a thing where I was packaging and selling New York City garbage in plastic cubes. Um, and so I, I started doing that and I started getting a ton of press for it. And so I would just put pick up dry trash off the street at night, put it in the box, put a label on it that says garbage of New York City. I'd seal it shut so it didn't open or smell. And then I put a sticker on with the date the garbage was picked. And I, and I sign and number each one to make it extra collectible. And I started selling it for 10 bucks uh, a cube. And I got written up in Time Out New York. And then I had NBC and CBS News in there. And then I got um, blogs writing about me. And I saw the power of an idea spreading around the world very quickly. Because I, all of a sudden, I would get written up in um, Metro London and then I would get calls from a radio station in the UK and in Ireland, and, and, and then that would happen. And all of a sudden, German publications would pick it up. And then you'd see Germany. All of a sudden, I'd get hit up for a bunch of places. And then somehow someone in Korea saw it, and I had Korean news stations coming to my, coming to my room. Uh, and so that was such a simple, dumb idea. I was like, I didn't even let people choose which one they wanted. They would just come on and pay me $10, and I would send them a box of trash. And... For me, that taught me almost everything I needed to know about marketing. <laughs> and I and I couldn't keep up with the demand, so I raised the price from $10 to $25. And then they kept selling. And so like two years later, I raised the price to $50. And it got to the point where when, when I was selling it at $10, people thought it was just a joke. And when it was $25, people were like, oh, it's a cool souvenir. And when it was $50, people started calling it art. Right. And it was such a lesson in the perception of value, and it's basically what the entire luxury goods industry does. Right. <laughs> it's like, let's just make it more expensive so people can prove that they can afford it. Um, and and so, yeah, like that one project alone got me all of my jobs in advertising, which my creative directors told me that's why I got hired, because I had the initiative to do it. And and, and then I took that, and I, so I always had that on the back burner, and I had other art ideas I wanted to do, and, and just working at an agency didn't give me enough time to do that. And I, at the time, I was buying into the 20 hours a day, seven days a week mentality, and I just didn't have the energy for it anymore. I'm imagining a penthouse in Tribeca that you call, like, you know, the house the trash cubes built, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely had to have paid at least a couple months of rent. Yeah, it, it, did, it went on for, like, 12 years. So, like, yeah, <laughs> I, I would make a few grand a year off it. It wasn't bad, yeah. It's pretty nice. Yeah. That's what we call I got passive income. Uh, yeah, and I got flown to Ireland to pick up trash from the St. Patrick's Day Parade. I did limited editions that were $100 a box. Yeah, it was a fun little side hustle for a while. And, and, and it, uh, you know, allowed me to... Um, to know that there's other stuff I can do, that I don't need to be relying on a brand to give me a brief or an agency to give me a job to be able to put ideas out into the world. Right. right. Um, and so I got that itch. And it's like, you know, I got to the point where I was like, I'd rather, one, I wanted to take my life back and be able to have time. And, and I started freelancing in 2007, which not a lot of people were freelancing at the time. And I just wanted to do my own thing. And I was a pretty lazy freelancer. Like I would freelance for two months and then take two months off. And it was just buying my time off. And But I made it work for me. And I was able to put projects out and be you – know, I saw a lot of other artists and creatives that were really prolific. And so for a while I was like, oh, I want to be prolific like them. And so I just put a bunch of stuff out there. Right. And that was really fulfilling for a while. And uh, and then, you know, it's and that's the thing. It's like yeah, I'd rather come up with ideas – for me, advertising is a great boot camp. It's a great training ground to learn how to get past the good ideas to the great ideas, to learn how to actually make shit, um, to learn how to solve real problems, and to build a network of people that are going to help me throughout my career um, and who I'm going to help throughout their careers. And once I have those tools, I can do anything. And yeah. if I can come up with ideas that make me millions of dollars instead of an agency and a holding company, then I should be doing that. At what point did you start 
uh, percolating on the idea of working, not working, and, and what was the genesis of it? Well, so I had been freelancing for maybe three, two, three years, and that is such an inefficient exercise. I, every time I would want a gig, I would call and email every single person I knew in the industry, which I'd only worked at three agencies, so it wasn't a lot of people. And like, hey, you got anything for me? Hey, you got anything for me? And of course, nobody had anything for me. And then two weeks later, I would get booked for a job. Awesome. And then inevitably, I would get five calls that week trying to book me. I'm like, this is stupid. And then I would talk to like the hires, and the, or you would just see it happening. They would be calling and emailing everybody they knew when they had you know needed someone in tomorrow, and then they would run around the creative department asking anybody if their friends are available. So they're just getting like any warm body to throw at this pitch. Yeah. And so I just had this realization that maybe I could put like just a hotel or a motel vacancy sign on my portfolio site. And so I did. I put this giant blinking neon sign. Uh, animated GIF that said Justin Genac is working, Justin Genac's available, or Justin Genac's available soon. And I had a what I called I called it the Justin Genac freelance status apparatus. And then I had an overutilization of technology. So I had a Facebook group, a Twitter feed, a text alert, an iPhone app, and a mailing list to follow my availability. And I ended up with like 40 agencies following me. And every time I'd flip my status to available, I get two or three job offers within a day. Any jobs I couldn't take, I would just email to my art director friends. And it got to the point – and people were like, oh, that's cool. You do that. And yeah, like, well, and also you're, like, they're, they're looking at your book to figure out how you think. But what in, what a fascinating sort of alternative expression of how your brain works just in the way that, you're, the way that you're getting a job. Thanks. Yeah, it was, and it just made sense to me. I was like, yeah. well, this is way easier. Just tell people when I'm available. And and people were like really thought it was cool that I was sharing my contacts with, with them. And I was like, of course, there's plenty of work to go around. And I'm not worried that if I go and introduce them to someone else that they're never going to call me again. And so uh, it got to the point where recruiters like, Justin, I see you're available by your little sign. Uh, I mean, so you see you're working by your little sign. Are any of your friends available? I was like, oh, shit, I'm a rep now. And uh, I had this going for a couple of years. And then my buddy, Adam Tompkins, uh, we worked together our first jobs at Ogilvy together. Uh, we were talking one day because he was working on his own startup trying to find freelance developers, which is impossible. And we just realized if that vacancy sign could work for me, it probably could work for everybody. And we were like, shit, we got to do this. And so we crudely wireframed a site in like a week. We found um, a dev studio to to design and build it. And we launched it six months later. And what year was that? Uh, we launched it January 2012. And you've been, you've been all in ever since. Well, for the first three years, um, Adam and I were doing everything on the site besides design and dev while also freelancing. So we were hustling on sales, vetting the talent throwing the parties, writing the emails, writing the copy on the site, doing basically everything and trying to like, you know, keep our lights on by taking freelance gigs. Um, and then three years in, we finally had gotten enough traction. We were able to pay ourselves a little bit um, and hire a couple of people to help us. And then we were able to prove that out and we, we did an angel round of funding uh, and then have been able to grow the team since then. And it's been now six and a half years. You, expl years. you explained it a little bit through your own personal experience, but for yeah. those who've never heard of the company, how do you how do you describe how working not working works? Yeah, so working not working is a curated network of the best creative talent in the world. Uh, we started off really focused on freelancers, but now we have freelance and full time. Um, but it's our our missions to eliminate the obstacles between creative people and opportunity. 
Um, so obviously the biggest obstacle is getting hired or hiring people. So creatives go on, they make a profile with their current availability, working available, available soon or full time. Um, they put you know uh, skills, bio, all that stuff, and then they put up to six projects in their mini book. And then they can go and companies can f- discover them on the platform, follow them, uh, and then get notified when they're available. So they have everybody that they follow all in one dashboard. So then st- instead of calling and emailing everybody, they have all of their people that are available now. And it's chronological too. So the people up top have updated one minute ago. And they can just go and hit those people up instead of kind of wasting wasting time like they used to. Yeah. Um, and for us, the, the curation was really important. So only about 15% of the people on the site get promoted to like a vetted level. Um, but people can still join the site and have a profile and, and be discovered for jobs even if they haven't been you know approved by our membership board yet. Yeah. Um, and then companies can go on and hire whoever they want. And we... You know, our biggest clients are basically every ad agency right now, yeah. um, Apple, Google, Facebook, Airbnb. Um, and so it's been it's been nice. That, definitely that curation helped us attract those clients. But the, most of those clients were who we were working for. So Adam and I were going around, and our first 30 clients were places that we had freelanced. And we were just like, hey, would you use this? <laughs> and then we were, we were having them demo it before we launched it. And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And then our friends, would you use this? Yeah, absolutely. And so that's how we started it, and it's just kind of grown from there. And we've already said that we've built this for our friends, yeah. our friends who are creatives and hire creatives, and that's kind of a, a an ethos that we've tried to continue as we grew it. Yeah, I freelanced for for a large part of, I think it was 2013, and I didn't know you at the time, but it definitely, when I first got on the site for that nine or ten months, it yeah. felt like it was designed for me and written for me by a friend and it had yeah. a real familiarity to it. Nice. Um, and, uh, and especially if you have a little bit of a track record and you have a little bit of a network and a reputation to trade off of, you know, your, th- those personal contacts will always be, you know, your best bet for consistent yeah. freelance, but to be able to pair that with this, you know, with this network where all of a sudden, you know, I was getting hit up from like, you know, Sid Lee in Canada and it's like, I don't know anyone in Sid Lee in Canada and they don't know me, but, you know, this is incredibly democratic. They saw my work, and and for whatever reason, they need yeah. they need one of me. I love hearing stuff like that. Like we had a, a one of our designers in Toronto get a job at Wyden Tokyo. Yeah, and like that's so cool, you know. And it's nice that people are yeah. Before your opportunities were only as big as your Rolodex, right? Um, or word of mouth. And so to be able to open that up a lot more and also be a place where when companies come on, they don't have to search through every creative on the internet. They know that the people they're going to come on are going to be really good um, and they can find the best in the industry. And that's been a hard <laughs> – how else do you usually do that besides looking at awards credits and then trying to like hunt people down through their websites? And to, to be able to bring everybody together in one collective and one community yeah. um, saves people a lot of time. The other great thing about the site is that it's incredibly democratic and you guys don't take a commission. So how do mm-hmm. you guys get paid? So um, it's free for the creatives always. Um, and the companies just pay a monthly or yearly membership mm-hmm. fee to access the talent. So yeah. it's a few hundred bucks a month. They can hire anybody off the site they want or everybody. Um, it's the same fee. And they can post a couple jobs um, and be able to access all that talent. Yeah. And I think what's cool about that too is they you pay a monthly fee um, – but there's more to that monthly fee than just the service on the site. And I think, you know, I, I first met you through um, Heather Beck. Shout out Heather Beck, who, <laughs> who is the, the, uh, the straw that stirs the drink at the Momentum Creative Department. And I was very surprised by your willingness to come to the agency 
Um, yeah. to, to the personal touch to get to know people there and to understand our needs and to sort of to create a more kind of customized um, uh, suite of tools yeah. that made sense for our, our agency where the type of talent that we're trying to attract, you know, maybe isn't necessarily the same as what BBDO or, mm-hmm. or McCann, you know, McCann proper is attempting to, well, to attract. I think that's a for us, the community is huge. Like we, it's really important for us that when people come on, it doesn't feel transactional doesn't feel like you're just coming on, swiping a credit card and posting a job. Like, that sucks. There's plenty of places you could do that. Um, for us, it was like, how do you fe- come on and feel the membership and feel like you're a part of something? It's why we do a ton of events. We do drinking, not drinking, happy hours. why we do talking, not talking. Uh, we started doing um, town halls and kind of uh, support groups for recruiters as well. Uh, and we do a freelancer holiday party every year because freelancers never get invited to holiday parties. Um, and we're trying to figure out, like, different ways to support the community uh, beyond just getting hired, uh, and and that's really important to us, and and I think that's especially if, I feel like that's a big differentiator from other places you can go. Like I don't think LinkedIn's doing that amount of like giving a shit about people, yeah. <laughs> like I think that we do. Yeah, um, LinkedIn and, feels way more transactional. It feels yeah. like the find a job machine a little bit. Yeah, and that's great, and and, and they do a really fucking good job with that. Yeah. Um, but I think it, as someone who is starting a business and trying to do things differently, that was really important to us to have it feel really personal. Yeah. Um, and and we, we realized that too, that like someone from Silicon Valley probably couldn't have come into the industry and just been like, hey, we've got these tools and um, really good interface. And, and it's just like, no, it's about having credibility and relationships and trust. And the fact that like, I, I feel really fortunate that a lot of creatives trust us enough to be on here. And a lot of companies trust us enough to be able to find talent through us. And we need to... You know, I've said that I feel like we've built the intercontinental railroad. <laughs> we've we've cleared the forest, but we need to get to teleportation because if we're talking about eliminating obstacles, uh, we need to make sure that people are able to find each other really quickly. And that's a, a thing that we're focused on internally right now is like how do we eliminate those obstacles even within the product or the way that we, we run internally? Like we probably should be more efficient with things. And so we're trying to figure out those things and, and trying to you know practice what we preach across the board. Yeah. yeah I mean, and so much of the product is – is a response to your own personal experience with the joys and freedoms and flaws of life as a freelancer. Yeah. Um, you know, the perceived benefit of freelance is you have more control over the professional and personal cadence of your life, uh, greater work-life balance, more diversified opportunities. Are you seeing these benefits in theory aligning with the reality of life as a freelancer? All of those things, uh, but then there's so many challenges that come along with it. And I think the biggest one that I didn't expect when I was freelancing, even starting a business when I was working from home for a while, just it's fucking lonely. And I thrive in a family atmosphere. I grew up in a big family. I've got seven younger brothers and sisters. And I, that was like one of the, my favorite things about Fallon and even about Toy. It's just I felt like a family. And then I go to freelancing and I'm in a place for a couple of weeks and then I'm out and I'm, or I'm freelancing from home or, you know, starting working out, working from home. I'm like, I'm sitting in solitude for 14 hours a day. That is not good for me. Some days it's okay, but I will forget to put music on and my, my ex would come home from work and I'd be like a puppy running to the door and she'd be like, I'd be like, oh my God, did you see this on the internet? And this and this and that. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Take it easy. Maybe go outside, talk to a barista, something. Like this is not good for you. And so I I think I hear that that from a lot of uh, freelancers that they – didn't realize the the loneliness and the isolation they were signing up for. And so that's a big thing of some some of what we try to do is getting people together. Um, but yeah, there's there's a ton of benefits to it. But I, I know friends also who 
have wanted to go back to taking a job in an agency because they miss being integral to the work. They didn't yeah. want to just like show up, throw some ideas in for a pitch and then take off. They missed being part of the solution and the strategy and or mentoring young talent or um, being able to have more of a say. Um, and so I think there are a lot of benefits to full time. And, and we used to think that freelance was a, a permanent destination. I was just like myself and a lot of my friends like, no, we're never going full time again. And they start talking to people and it's an ebb and flow and they're just waiting for the right opportunity to come along. It's a really great way to date before you marry, to go and try yeah. out a lot of different companies, see which one feels like a good fit. And then like, yeah, I want to keep showing up here. Great. Yeah, I'll take a full-time job. Yeah. And I think that probably what happened to you and and, and it, it just – it's all a timing thing. And, and I think – to, to pretend that we know how, how it all works or what everybody's needs are is just unrealistic. And I, I think that's one big thing. Like we built the site initially based on our own needs and our friends' needs and now realizing we have a much bit larger community than just us. And I've been out of the freelance game for four years now. So I can't pretend in, that I know what's going on anymore besides what I hear from people. So we need to let go. We're letting go of a lot of our assumptions and then spending a lot more time talking to people and trying to figure out what they actually need. When you create community events for freelancers to gather and, mm -hmm. and you know, feel some basic human contact, <laughs> is there ever a conflict because these are people who are trying to enjoy each other in a social environment, but they're also technically each other's competition. And sometimes there's plenty to go around and there's other times where there's not plenty to go around right. and, and employers are choosing between you and the guy you're having a drink with at the bar that night. Uh, I, I don't sense that vibe ever. Um, but I, you know, I, I think right now I've heard over the past six months that it's been a little quiet and people are getting a little like, oh, shit, what's going on? What am I going to do? There's not as much work anymore. Uh, but I think when you're, you're together with other people, I don't think everyone, anyone's sizing each other up. Sure. I think there's just a lot of camaraderie and, hey, we're all going through this together. Do you have any, do you have any <laughs> insight into the ebb and flow of when, when the getting is good on freelance and when it gets quiet? I, I definitely feel, feel it now on the other side where yeah. it's like, you know, all of a sudden – I get 15 emails in a 24-hour period like, hey, bro, just got anything, uh, got you know, anything? Got yeah. anything? And, yeah, and um, you know, it's sometimes subtle and sometimes, you know, not so subtle. But is there is there, is there there any way to predict when it's a, a buyer's market versus a freelancer's market? I think we there could be if we did a better job uh, with closing jobs within the site. So mm -hmm. we've been, like when we started this, we were like, hey, people have a way of working. We don't want to have to completely disrupt that because we know – uh, that'll be too many hurdles. So initially when the site started, everything was through your own email. Uh, then we introduced messaging within the site. Uh, people can close jobs like with people they were talking to in the site, but it's not required. And so we don't have as finite data as, oh, wow, this many people are talking right now. This many people have gotten hired. Um, that's something I, I, at some point we would like to move towards because then we, we, we could have a better understanding of like – and there's natural ebbs and flows that happen in the summer. It gets quiet. Yeah. Holidays get quiet. Um, Pre-holidays get really busy because of Super Bowl. Um, but every industry is different. Every market's different. Um, and so, yeah, maybe at some point when we when we have a bit more uh, resources, we'd be able to have a better understanding. But now it's just a lot of just talking to people and yeah. hearing about it. I love the dating aspect of it um, because you know at an agency like ours, we you know we have a 
you know, roughly 35-person creative department in New York. So it's not tiny, but it's not gigantic. And, um, you know, when we hire an ACD or a CD in particular, like, we got to get it right. Yeah. Um, and so to have somebody who comes and, you know, works for four or six weeks and at the end of the day, you know, you want talented people, but you want talented people that want to be there. You don't yeah. want to feel like you're selling them a bill of goods um, to convince them to come somewhere. Well, that's so like, like with any relationship. You yeah. want it to be honest and transparent because if if you're going into it like either pretending you're something you're not and vice versa with the, the talent, it's never going to work. And so, you know, that try before you buy makes so much more sense because it could be a really expensive mistake to hire the wrong person. You spend three months, six months looking for a CD and you pull them out of another agency and you yeah. plop them into yours. And then you're like, oh, wow, they, they don't handle stress well, or maybe they're not as good as their book, or they're kind of a dick. And that then the time it takes to get rid of that person is probably another six months. And then to find the, the person to replace them is another six months. It makes so much more sense to bring someone in and just throw them into the fire and be like, oh, wow, they're really great. And there's enough incredibly talented people out there right now that are freelancing that you can do that yeah. and, 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 and not risk making a mistake. Like Lauren Ranke, who's... Um, one of the head recruiters at Widen Portland, she said that freelance is the new interview. And she she just would rather bring people in and see see how they go. Yeah. And then yeah, if it's a great fit, let's make this let's make this official. Yeah. Even if you do three rounds of interviews with everyone at your agency, you you really never know what you're getting and never and know. you see work in people's books and I mean I'm sure you've seen people have like elf yourself in their book and you're like, you didn't really work on that. Or like, you know, you, uh -huh. you like, we've all had that. I mean, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's like flattering in a certain way, but it's like super upsetting in another way. It's like, I, I gave a lot of myself to that idea. Uh -huh. You showed up at the very, very end and like, like brought a round of coffee into the edit room. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, people but, have to sort of decide what their like integrity their own level ethics is. Are, their yeah, own yeah. Ethics are. But the point of that is just like, um, either the know. job, either the job is, is attempting to sell you, you know, more of an opportunity than what you're really signing up for, or the person is trying to sell themselves as more than what they really are. And and ultimately what one side or the other is doing is like creating premeditated resentment. Yeah, know? for sure. And 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 it, it is that it's and it's every situation, whether it's dating or professional, like you you just have to be upfront and, and people have to be really honest about what they need. Um and and that's how you lead to successful things. You're not gonna go and convince someone who doesn't want to live in uh, Austin or Portland to move to Austin and Portland for the wrong reasons. And then yeah. suddenly they're like, yeah, I didn't really want to live here in the first place, you know? And it's the same thing like, hey, you told me uh, there's a, a really good culture here and there's a lot of freedom and autonomy and I'm going to be running this piece of business and I show up and you're like, well, actually the culture sucks. <laughs> I have no autonomy and um, I'm, I'm not, I don't actually have any uh, authority to make any decisions in this business. Yeah, you're going to like it's just setting everybody up to fail. Yeah. Sometimes it's also just the maturation of a young creative who has ambitions for a bigger title and doesn't ask the right questions. Um, oh, yeah. when I, I left CAA to join an agency um, here in New York called Narrative. And at the time, it was headed up by Russell Simmons. And yeah. I'm a child of hip hop. And so yeah, yeah. Um, I just romanticized this idea of like a Russell Simmons agency and, and my <laughs> role in it. And it was the first CCO role that I had. And I went and I interviewed – um, and I, I didn't ask the questions that I didn't want to know the answer to. And it's uh -huh. nothing against narrative. It was just a bad fit for me. It was a startup. It was a small company. And the truth is that's not what I was looking for. And so when I got there on the first day and like, you know, the coffee wasn't made and like, yeah. you know, it was small bathrooms and no privacy and nowhere to make a phone call because it was a gritty startup at the time. Like, yeah. 
what right did I have to act so surprised? I interviewed there. I knew I saw the space when I went in there, but yeah. I saw what I wanted to see. And so, you know, you you have to – it's part. It's just part of growing up as you yeah. kind of like try to figure out, you know, your ambition versus, you know, op- opportunities that you deserve or that are available well, to you. Well, it's amazing. If you had freelanced there for two months, you would have been like, eh, this is not right for me. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's people just being open to that. Right. Um the other interesting thing about freelance, I think, you said, you know, you, were, you kind of first got into it in 2006, 2007, and it was kind of that standard lonely life. I mean, I've fi- I found with myself and with my friends, it can take on many forms. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, um, the agency wants you to be there at the agency, hold, keeping the same hours that a full-time employee would, which some creatives really love. Yeah. Um, I mean, I even had it where... At a certain agency, I was I was like a freelance ECD. Mm-hmm. I was in a pitch representing myself as like senior leadership at this yeah, agency. Yeah, I did that even. too. Yeah, yeah. And it's like uh, and the dirty little secret is like if we win this, you're never going to see me again. Probably. <laughs> um, but are you seeing? I think that's a good thing. Are you seeing that just the sort of definition of what it means to be a freelancer freelancer has been expanding? Yeah, I think people are willing to give more responsibility to freelancers, and and. Uh, I think that the freedom now or the, the, the opportunity is to bring the right person in for the job and not to go and force someone who's maybe you have on staff that isn't a right fit for it, that isn't an expert in the field or in uh, the subject matter to go and kind of force fit them into it. You could bring someone in that actually knows what the hell they're doing um, on that specific type of business. And then it's really setting you up better for success. And, 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 I had a role like that once, uh, but they were really honest with the uh, with the clients that I was a freelancer. But I was on the I was contracted for six months, and I'm going to be focused on their business. And we had a great relationship with the client. I had a great relationship, and it was it was great for everybody all around. And we produced work that we were proud of. Um, and so I think not being afraid. Like, freelance used to be a dirty word. And people would be afraid of like, oh, we don't don't want them to know it's freelancer, and right? And it's like, no, like we care enough about your business to bring in the right person for the job. Um, yeah, they're freelance, but that's okay. Like, and the reality is, everyone's freelance. I could be full time, and I could be working on your business, and I can tomorrow decide I don't want to be here anymore, and I can leave. And so to pretend that people are going to stick around longer and have better relationships with the clients because they're on staff just isn't necessarily true. Now, if someone says, hey, I'm, I'm only going to be here for two weeks, yeah, you probably don't want to be throwing them into all your client meetings. Um, but I, I think we need to redefine how we look at employees and how we look at work. Um, and, and I see that starting to shift and people are being a lot more open to it. Uh, it, it, it's way better <laughs> to find a person that's going to be really great for the piece of business that you're on and it's going to serve you and your clients' needs a lot better uh, in the long run. So not to shy away from that. It is funny you say that. I mean, my, my nine, ten months freelancing, there was an illusion of freedom. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, even if you're deeply entrenched with the company that is that's freelancing you, it just feels like at the end of the day, you know, their problems are not your problems. And that, you know, even if you're going to work here for three months, eventually, like, you know, you're going to walk away. And the best thing that you can do in addition to what they're asking you to do is to sort of be a ray of sunshine mm-hmm. that brings a little bit of positivity into, yeah. you know, maybe a difficult situation, which oftentimes is the, you know, is the genesis of inviting freelance in, in the first place. But um, you learn how greedy you are. Because I, I had this illusion of freedom, but yeah. the truth is I was working seven days a week for months at a time because I couldn't say no because the money's good and and then – You don't know I, if it's going to be around next week. And you don't yeah. know if it's going to be around next week. You really feel obligated to say yes to everything that comes your way and when there's a steady stream of it. And then you say, all right, well, 
I've really des- I really deserve a break. And so you take a day or two or a week and you take a break, but you know what you could be making if you didn't take a break. Or maybe you take a break and then you hit your contacts up and you put your sign on on working, not working, and yeah. you don't hear back for two days. And then all of a sudden- you start to panic. I'd panic. I'd go, oh my God, I'm, I'm irrelevant in the industry. No one cares about me. I'm never going to work again. Yeah. Um, that's that's a lot of emotions That's almost the hardest thing of freelance is yeah. just having the stomach to ride out the low points. Yeah. Uh, because there are going to be weeks where you don't have work. And you have to figure out how to make the most of that and not just sit at your home being anxious. Um, it's, it's, all right, well, let me go and f- feed my soul with something else. Let me go to museums. Let me go on a road trip. Uh, let me go volunteer, whatever it is, to, or let me go catch up with friends. Uh, making the most of that time and feeding, feeding yourself uh, in other ways that you can't do it when you're working. And, and then things, usually, <laughs> things work out. Um, and, and, and being confident enough that, that those are going to work out because I know a lot of people have been like, would freelance for years straight and not take a vacation, but that's like totally unhealthy. Yeah. Uh, and like, I used to be a pretty lazy freelancer, as I said, um, but like I wouldn't work weekends and people would be like, Hey, can you work the weekend? And I'm like, no, if I wanted to work weekends, I'd be full time still. Uh, I'm g- I have plans this weekend and I wouldn't cancel plans. And, and, it, but th- what I would do is I would just work hard when I was there. And what happens is people go, all right, we have a meeting on Monday and we're going to, I used to hate it when I would be Tuesday, the account people would go, all right, so what do you guys feel like for uh, lunch on Saturday? And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because if you go and say, I have two extra days to get this job done, you're going to take two extra days and you're going to screw around at the office and you're going to play pool and ping pong and all that. But if that meeting was Friday, we would get this shit done by Friday. Yeah, water water fills the size of the container you pour it into. Yeah, and so we used to have that like at Fallon or at at Toy. I tried to, you know, we were very small, but I'm like, hey, can we just have a rule that we have no Monday client meetings? And we tried to do that and, and made a difference because Monday client meetings forced the creatives to work the weekend. Um, and like, can we just try to like have some sort of balance? And I just have this mindset of like, if you can't get the job done between nine and seven, five days a week, most of the time, then you shouldn't be doing this job. And, you know, there are times where you're going to have to work weekends and late nights, but yeah. it shouldn't be, I think, in advertising, there's such a mindset that we're just resigning ourselves to working stupid and working long hours instead of working smarter and more efficiently. So um, I think that's going to have to change because I think creatives are getting a bit fed up with that and realize that there's other other ways to work and other ways to live and they don't have to buy into that shit anymore. I definitely agree with you, but there, I think there is another side of it working in – if you work in New York or you work in San Francisco and you're you know, 26 years old and it's your first or second job out of school and – you know, you're trying to make ends meet in one of the most expensive cities in yeah. the world, making you know fifty grand, sixty grand a year. But the agency is probably a lot more fun to be at than your apartment that you're sharing with three <laughs> or four people. And so, like, I, yeah. I think there's a little bit of that. Yeah. And and I, I get that, but I also think that the industry, at least you know, in the back in my day, uh, you would drink this Kool Aid that, oh uh, yeah, you're supposed to miss your best friend's wedding, right? or bachelor party or your kid's recital because we've got a diaper pitch in the morning. (laughs) Fuck that. Literally fuck that. Like you're never getting that shit back. Like there's a book um, and I put it on my Instagram because I always reference it. Um, But this woman who uh, was a nurse and was caring caring for people at the end of their lives wrote a book of the top five regrets of the dying. And one of the biggest ones is I wish I, w- I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Yeah. And I wish I'd let myself be happier. And so I don't buy into that shit anymore that I'm going to go and sacrifice my life and these hallmark moments of my life that I'm never going to get back again right. because I have to be here working. 
Um, and I think people that expect that is just it's cruel and it's not necessary. It's hard to, as we were talking about, it's hard to generate a strong day rate until you have a track record, oh, until yeah. you have a reputation to trade off of. But I think a lot of young creatives kind of hear this this kind of mythology of of how lucrative freelance can be. Yeah. Is, has it been a problem for the site that less experienced creatives um, show up to work not working with an unex, with a with an unreasonable expectation of their value? I I almost I, it, well, there's a few things there. I speak at schools you know pretty often now, and and I tell them. If you can get a job, take a job. You need to learn how to do this and do this with discipline and, and get some work under your belt that you can show because you're not going to be able to build a sustainable career, especially in advertising, um, just freelancing because you're just going to be doing meeting fodder and you're probably the chance of actually producing work that's going to affect your career and you're going to want to put in your book is so low. So you're going to continue making $200 a day for far longer than if you went and took a job somewhere, made some decent work, got another job, made some better work, and then after four or five years, went freelancing and make 1000 bucks a day. You're just never going to be able to be on that path if you try to start your career by only freelancing. So freelancing initially, because you, you can't get a job somewhere, is fine. Try places out. But if you're actually able to get a job, even if it's maybe not your favorite place, go there and make the most of it and take every brief as if it's like your last brief and, and put your all into it and make some great shit. Because I think just freelancing, trying to build a career as a freelancer right out of school, it's just it, it's going to work against you. Yeah. Well, I mean, your rate is driven by your experience and it's driven by your portfolio. And it's really hard to build a portfolio when you're freelancing because, you know, the job of a responsible agency is to extract the most and the best work out of you in the shortest amount of time possible. And it's, you know, they're not they're not keeping you around to, like, enjoy their coffee and wait for feedback yeah. and, 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 go and, on the shoot. and go on the shoot and be like, in the edit. You're not actually learning how to make shit. Right. So you're you're missing one of those, like, four things that I think you need to get out of advertising. And you just need to get into the grind and, and, and be churning through ideas and having a, a thousand ideas killed to get to to get to one. And you're not going to get that as a freelancer. Um, there are people like myself who used uh, freelance as a bridge to be able to take my time mm -hmm. to figure out what I wanted to do next. And then, yeah. you know, a lot of my friends are are career freelancers um, and they really enjoy, you know, the benefits of that lifestyle. And they had the early career that, you know, affords them the, the luxury of being able to be a, you know, 15-year freelancer. Um, which Which version are you – are you more predominantly seeing as as constituting the working networking community? I, I think it is the the ebb and flow and people trying to find figure out what the next thing is. I used yeah. to think everybody was like, uh, yeah, this is my I only want to freelance. And then we did a survey a few years ago and we said, for the right opportunity, would you take a full time job? At the time, ninety five percent of the community was freelance. Uh, over eighty percent said they would take a full time job for the right thing. Yeah, um, and I think. And it's a question I pose to a lot of my friends who have been freelancing now for five, six, ten years. I ask them, what do you want to do in your career? Do you want to be a CD somewhere? Do you want to go and run an agency or start an agency? And some of them are like, no, I'm just doing this to fund my side projects. That's great. Um, others are like, yeah, I want to be a CD. And I'm like, well, you've got to make some shit. You've been a freelancer for five years and you've produced one new thing in your book. Right. You're going to become irrelevant. And you ha you have to be producing. My goal as a full time creative or a freelance creative was to have one book piece a year 
that I could add and that I was proud of. Yeah. And I think that's like, if you can get one thing that you're super proud of, even as a full-timer, you're like, okay, great. And whether that was a advertising project or a personal project, didn't matter to me. But if you're not adding at least one new project that's significant, that would probably be the first thing in your book every year, you're, people are going to forget about you. Yeah. Because it's really easy, especially I go and look at people's profiles all the time. And I think one thing that you pointed out was like, it's great because the site is democratic. So it's the internet. Like people just go and look. People probably aren't even looking at your resume. They're just looking at the work. And we have a lot of people come to us and be like, hey, I haven't got any gigs off the site. And it's like, well, and you look at their You're like profile. the Wendy's Where's the Beef campaign was dope, but yeah. it was kind of a long time ago. It was and, a long yeah. time ago. And I think a lot of people were like, uh, and like, well, all of your stuff looks really dated. Maybe present it in a better way. Maybe um, you shouldn't be using a cargo site from 2004 anymore with really tiny thumbnails. Maybe get a Squarespace or Simplice site and put some big visuals. And yeah, that shot was that stuff wasn't shot in HD. Well, find a way to present it better. Hire a friend of yours uh, who's a designer and art director to make sure your book looks clean and new and relevant. And I think a lot of people will allow their their history to sustain them. But people are going to forget about your history. Like yeah. we have people that we worked with and grew up with that we probably idolized. And, and the kids coming out of school don't know who they are. And, and other people, like it's really easy to fall out of favor. And I think that's a thing that happens a lot too. Like there's people, and I'll probably get in trouble for this, um, but a lot of people are blaming ageism for not getting hired anymore. I remember when I came into the industry and at Ogilvy and you saw that guy, the older guy in the corner office, and you're like, what does that guy work on? And you're like, oh, God, he works on like this terrible stuff. And big you're tobacco. Like, yeah, big tobacco, whatever. And you're like, oh, man, I never want to become that guy, right? And what happens is you lead a career where you're making work and you get promoted and you're an ACD, then you're a CD, and you start going to more meetings and more meetings and more meetings. You start making a lot of money and you start making a shit ton of money. And you allowed yourself to become irrelevant or not indispensable. Right. And so I think there's people who have had long careers and are, you know, in their 50s and 60s and are still producing quality work that and, and are, are curious about what's going on and are making sure that they're they still have their finger on the pulse and they're making relevant work for the industry. And then other people don't and they blame everyone else for why they're not getting hired. And like, there's nothing keeping you from going and putting a personal project out there that's amazing and, and, and is relevant and gets press. There's nothing preventing you from making great work except you. And they want to go and blame other people for their inability to do that. Um, and it's just, I, I hear it all the time and it kind of breaks my heart a bit because it's like, you're the only reason why you're not getting hired right now. Yeah. And you're putting the blame on everyone else. And I think uh, Mark Mall did a great project um, he's a, a copywriter, a good dude, uh, tall dude. And he did a project was like uh, creativity knows no age. I think it was. And he was just like calling out like uh, Colonel Sanders started his first, uh, you know, fried chicken restaurant when he was 65 and Julia Child did this. And it was all these people who started and reached the peaks of their careers in their fifties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. And so there's no excuse and so I think people who are maybe feeling like they're what's going on and I'm and maybe I'm not getting work anymore, go and make some work. Go and have fun again. I think and that's one of the 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 tenets of being a creative is redefining yourself and challenging yourself yeah. and, and 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 making stuff and using those rules we've talked about or those restrictions or limitations 
to make something great. And so I think uh, maybe people who have been mailing it in for a while and, and collecting checks and going to meetings should re remind themselves of why they got into this and start making stuff again. And if you could do that, then you're going to have a long career. People are like, ma make sure that you're like, people can't ignore you. You get to a, a certain compensation level where um, you feel like you're owed something mm -hmm. or you feel like things are suddenly beneath you. Yeah. And if you're at an agency and you, the way it works and, and it's, it's just the way it works, but it's you get to a certain level of compensation. And then when you go from indispensable to dispensable, it's impossible for the organization not to look at it and say, you know, loyalty notwithstanding, we can keep paying this guy $500,000 a year or we can go get like four super hungry people whose rib cage we can see through their skin who mm -hmm. are dying to make the best work of their career. Yeah. Um, and Don't, that's, that's, that's hard. That's, you know, that's a very difficult proposition. Like you have to stay hungry. Yeah. You ha can't get comfortable. And I, I think if you start noticing yourself feeling comfortable, it should scare the shit out of you. Yeah. Because the, the writing's on the wall then. And I think we need to all like be pushing ourselves. I mean, what, what I love about what you created is it allows, it allows creative people to, to plot their careers in chapters a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, the old mentality was like, you know, bounce around until you find a home, plant your roots in that home and never leave until, you know, your 401k is okay. Yeah. And now, you know, to be able to leave without necessarily knowing what your next move is, um, to be able to date, to be able to, to mm -hmm. you know, I expand um, the breadth of your opportunities and see if maybe you're good at something that, you know, you didn't even know was, was a possibility to you before yeah. they found you or you found them on the site. Um, but then it's also interesting. I mean, I've, I've interviewed people who are freelancers who I think can fall into the trap of seductive math where mm -hmm. it's like, well, you know, I was a senior writer or an ACD. <laughs> and yeah. so I make, you know, let's call it a thousand dollars a day. And uh, so a thousand dollars a day times, you know, times 300 working days a year uh -huh. times 15 years. But, yeah. and, and that math all sounds great. There's no benefits. There's no yeah. 401k. Yeah. Um, you have to you're, hustle you're, for that work constantly. You have to hustle for that work constantly. Uh, in 10 years, are you going to have anything in your book that's going to maintain that? And by the way, do you have any ambition of making more money than that? And so I, I've yeah. even, I've had- it does cap out as a freelancer. It definitely only so much. I've had make. conversations with people I wanted to hire and I said, look, I, I know I know that the salary I'm offering you is slightly less than what you're making you know, yearly as a freelancer, but here's the deal. If you're happy making that for the rest of your life, then you shouldn't take this job. Yeah. If you want to come and get a job as an ACD or a CD um, for the first time in your career, maybe get, be given an opportunity that that your book or your experience doesn't totally yeah. doesn't totally bear out, but but we want to take a bet on you. Yeah, let's see what this looks like in a year or two, and and either you're making more money here because you're showing mm -hmm. improving, or you leave and you add an extra two hundred and fifty bucks to your day rate. And, yeah. and both both outcomes are are are, are whatever happens. Yeah. both outcomes you can live with. And that. none of it's permanent, and yeah. that's the thing. It's like uh, to go and take a job for a year. It's not going to work against you. And I think uh, people sometimes are afraid of taking jobs. And it's like, none of this is permanent. Just yeah. go into if, – if you're into it and you're into the people, go and do it. Get some work for your book. You know, get get a new experience. Add to your title. Um, because, like, it does get to a point where if you're making, you know, pretty good salary, you're going to have to double dip for half the year just to be able to make that income as a freelancer. And that gets exhausting. And I have friends that double dip and triple dip. And it's just like that's a that's a – unbelievable pace to try to keep up and it runs you into the ground. Is double dipping and triple dipping unethical? Oh, so I had one more client say this to me. Uh, 
I think here's what happens. You hire someone to do a job. If they deliver and do the job well, you hire them again. If they don't, you never hire them again. That's it. So if you can bring someone in and they're double dipping and they're getting the, as long as they're not double dipping on for another agency on the same pitch and they're getting the job done, what do you care? You're not paying for 24 of my hours. You're paying for eight of my hours. And so if I can go and get this done and get something else done, what does it matter? And a lot of people get bent out of shape about double dipping. And some um, networks refuse to pay people if they were double dipping at two agencies within the network. I think that's bullshit. If, now, some people cannot double dip. And they kid themselves and think they can double dip. And then people are like, yeah, they kind of drop the ball. They're mailing it in. Uh, then, yeah, you kind of deserve the repercussions of that. If you cannot handle it, very few people can actually pull it off. Um, but I have clients that go and go, yeah, like they would hit someone up and a writer and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm busy on another job. Like, we don't care whatever we can get from you, even if it's like half days, because they know those people are really good and and they're happy to get them contributing on it. And then they deliver. Yeah. So you have to deliver. So I think everyone should just chill out about the double dipping and triple dipping. And if you can't pull it off, don't try to do it because it's going to negatively impact impact your career. And word gets around also. Most of the recruiters are friends. And so if you go and drop the ball at agency A, agency B and C and D, probably you're going to hear about it. So be really selective if you're going to try to pull that off. Um, For three days in the summer of 2012, I accomplished the mystical quadruple dip. Oh, wow. It almost killed me. Yeah. Because you're just – I mean I I would frequently – I will admit I would frequently double and triple dip as a freelancer um, and it's lucrative. And if you're a high capacity person and if yeah. you're willing to stay up super like I gave yeah. everybody full work days. I just didn't yeah. sleep a lot and and, yeah. and I sort of went into kind of greed overdrive yeah. for a short period of time, I'll, I'll admit. Um, but you have to show up on certain phone calls and you're at the whim of agencies that maybe don't keep great time. And if yeah. they tell you one o'clock, you really can't count on that time. And it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely the most stressful 72 yeah. hours of my life. And at the end yeah. of it, I was like, the, the money was great and I'm yeah. going to take a little break, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm never, definitely never doing that again. Yeah. And it's, and it's one of those things you got to know where your capacity is yeah. and, and you could easily fuck yourself. Yeah. So be, really be careful about that. Yeah. What was the most horrifying or cynical response you got to your, your business idea of working, not working before you had gotten it off the ground? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think we, we used to come across it a lot with recruiters who've been doing it for a long time. And they're like, I got my people. I know my people. I don't need you. And I was like, okay, that seems a little short-sighted. And so I'm like, well, well how, many, how many people do you have as go-to? And they're like, oh, I got like my 20 people. And I'm like, yeah, but now every agency and tech company in the country – is going to have access to them too because all of those people you just named to me are on working, not working. So what are you going to do when they're all booked? And I'm like, well, uh, I'll let, and it's like, no, and it's almost like, and I said, we built this initially, even if you were only going to hire those people and you only wanted to keep tabs on those people, we built a thing that you have them all on a dashboard by their availability and you can see how recently they updated. So you don't have to do those blind calls anymore. And you can go in in five minutes, find that person, or you can go and send an alert, like make someone a favorite. So as soon as they switch to available, you get an email in your inbox. It's going to make the thing that you do and hire the people you love to hire just way more efficient. Why are you going to go and like, 
but it was a pride thing. And I think we, we heard that a lot. And, and those people, most of those people have come around because one, you have your people, but now you can have way more people and you can discover other talent that you, you love and you trust, or you can see, Hey, I love these 10 people. Oh, wow. They vouched for another hundred people who are all probably pretty good. And so I think people have, are really set in their ways and that's okay. And people are also really good at their jobs, but we're going to help you be better at your job. Do recruiters view you as the enemy? I, no, I don't think so. Um, and I hope not. Like re, like internal recruiters? No. Headhunters? Like, like headhunters, yeah. Uh, yeah, headhunters I think generally hate us. Yeah, um, makes sense. And, and, and I, I had heard um, a friend of ours who was a CD, a well-known CD, had heard, and this was a couple of years ago, um, and I think it was, uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, he was talking to a company here in New York and they said that their business was down 60% over the past previous two years. Um, and they solely blamed working not working because they were relying really heavily on freelancers. And I think, um, there is a kind of a herding cattle mentality with placing freelancers. And I think one thing, and I've, I've said this to some of my friends who are headhunters, like this will allow you to build more relationships because that hustle of trying to place freelancers is exhausting. But if you can focus on the relationships you have with your, your creatives and, and, and being more focused on their careers overall, you're still going to do really well. I think, you know, as tools like us and, and communities like us grow, the need for headhunters charging anywhere from a 15% to 120% markup is going to become less and less. But the people who are really good in this business, who have relationships with creatives and with companies, are still going to survive because those relationships are irreplaceable. Yeah. But then the 90% of them that are shit and are just like shuffling people around, don't really care what they're doing, they're going to go away because they're not going to be necessary anymore. Well, that's is, I mean, what you're describing is <laughs> is the whole benefit of the new economy, right? Yeah. It's like... I'm not going to, you know, you're not necessarily the, you know, the Netflix to the headhunters blockbuster video, but yeah. when you create, when you see white space and you create a product or service that, um, you know, exploits an inefficiency, the byproduct is, you know, those who are benefiting from that inefficiency are going to yeah. hate you a little bit Yeah, and you can live with that. Yeah. Well, and, and some of those, you know, and it uh, is also an ebb and flow too with those jobs. Sometimes people will be internal at a company and sometimes they'll be external. And so, you know, always try and to be. And probably with headhunters, you know, where they're, where, where you haven't infringed on their businesses at, at those real top level senior hires where that personal touch and those you know, kind of those long-standing relationships of the headhunter. Yeah, you know, knowing the person for junior. fifteen yeah. years. You know, so there's but, there's enough to go. But on. I think the, the the nice thing is too is we have those people on our platform too. Oh, and, for sure. And we have those relationships, and and we do have a higher touch service where we can help people too. Um, but it is, I, all those people are going to be okay if you if you're really good at your job and you really care about people and you treat people well, you're still going to be in business for a long time. Justin, it's incredible to talk to someone like you who, you know, saw a white space, took a chance, um, and bet on yourself. Thank um, you. And as I said before, you know, from the copy on your site to your newsletter, which I enjoy, to your events, to your podcast, um, I see a guy who's, like, really living his mission, and it's really inspiring, and, uh, and keep it up, man. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Thank you to Justin. Thank you to The One Club. Thank you to JSM and our intrepid executive producer, Jeff Fiorello. If you like the pod, please share it with a friend. Please rate it and review it. And until we talk next, peace. Peace.